are doing a series this summer called Law and Order. Uh, it is not about the TV show. Um, we, are, we are actually talking about uh, the judges of, the, of ancient Israel back in uh, the Old Testament in the book of Judges. And I know some of you might think, why are we doing a, a whole summer series on an Old Testament book? Shouldn't we be focusing on Jesus? Well, the good news is that even the Old Testament is about Jesus. Uh, the old and the new are all Jesus. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus, and the new uh, has Jesus in it specifically, and then looks back at what he did for us. So, uh, so it's all through it, and, and it, this is not a history lesson about the judges of Israel. I can promise you that. Uh, I believe we're going to see the, you're going to see the depravity of man, and you're going to see the mercy and grace of our God, even in the Old Testament, just like we did last week as we kicked this off. And uh, I'm actually really excited about it. Um, I think I believe God is, is all through it, and it's really, really exciting to me because I think we see Jesus and the heart of God in Judges, and uh, we see his mercy and his grace, and then we also see ourselves. And my hope and my desire for us during these, uh, this series is that we would see ourselves and we would see the heart of God, that we would see our desperate need for a Savior. And, uh, and not, that, not that we just need a Savior, but that we need someone to, uh, to live our life with us to do it with us, and we'll see that through this, and um, I, I'm just excited. I've really been enjoying it myself. I, I love reading through the book of Judges. I, I, read, I read it quite frequently, but um, studying it a little deeper, going through this series uh, has already been a blessing to me, so I, I think it will be for you too. Um, and where, where we're at right now in this, this week, um, in fact, I'm going to read my text first in a second, but I want to kind of give you a little context of it. The, the book of Judges actually comes in right after Joshua. So Joshua was the one that actually, after Moses died, Joshua was the one that brought the, the Israelites into the promised land that God had promised them so many years earlier. And Joshua brought them in, and he did what God told him to do, and he destroyed, he, he eradicated the, the nations that were in the promised land because of their worship of false gods and, and the depravity that had overtaken those nations. And, but when, when Joshua died, uh, not all of the land had been conquered yet. And so there's some time that passed between the time that Joshua brought them into the promised land and where the book of Judges picks up. And so we're going to look at uh, a, a, a new season here in the life of the Israelites. And my text verse is going to be out of Judges 3. Uh, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together tonight, today? It's not night yet. feels like it, but it's not. Uh, Judges 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, These are the nations that the Lord left in the land, to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. These are the nations, the Philistines, those living under the five Philistine rulers, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the mountains of Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. These people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands the Lord had given to their ancestors through Moses. Very interesting passage of scripture here. Uh, the title of my message today is Preparing for Battle. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we love you. God, you are so good. You're so good. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you that we know that you are here. And Lord, we ask that over these next few minutes that you would do the work that only you can do. God, we wanna hear from you. We wanna learn of you. And we wanna love you more. God, we can only do that by your spirit drawing us. The Holy Spirit, have your way during these next few moments for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Praise God. You can be seated. So life is full of parallels between the spiritual and the natural, right? We all know that. If you've been following 
Jesus for any length of time, you know that there's all kinds of parallels, all kinds of illustrations that we can pull from our spiritual life and our natural life that, that coincide together, right? The Israelites, they had many, many battles going into the promised land when they took it over. And they also had a lot of personal spiritual battles that they dealt with as well going into this land. They, they coincided all the time in their life. And we have that in our life as well. Um, I, just a very, very brief illustration to give you. Um, I remember the, the moment that I realized that I was not a young adult anymore. Uh, it wasn't a great moment. <laughs> uh, I'm 49 now. When I, when, I was, when I turned 40, or when I was 40, I remember spontaneously agreeing to play basketball with some young 20-somethings uh, down here in our other building, in our gym down there. And, uh, you know, I went in pretty confident. I've always been pretty active, and I thought I was going to go in and kind of show these young guys how, it, how it's done. And uh, about five minutes in, I thought I was having a heart attack. So uh, it didn't work out well for me at all. Um, I was calling for a sub quick. <laughs> and uh, I learned two things that night. I learned, first of all, that your body doesn't know that 40 is the new 20. It has no idea. It, it doesn't, it's never heard that. It doesn't even believe it. And I also learned that uh, I was very unprepared for this challenge in my life. And uh, this, this parallels in our life with a lot of the spiritual challenges that I deal with in my life and that I'm sure you do as well in your life, that we have to be prepared for our spiritual battles. The, pro the difference is when it's a natural battle, like the one I'm described here, um, I can sit out the next game, which by the way, I chose to do that. You could sit out those, some of those trivial battles that you have in life. You can't sit out the spiritual battles because they're coming your way and you're gonna have to deal with them. You're gonna have to confront them one way or another. It doesn't, if, and if you don't confront them, you're just gonna get steamrolled. So we, we don't have a choice but to confront the, the spiritual battles we deal with, and it's so important that we are ready, that we are prepared for the battles. It turns out I was underprepared and overconfident with the, the battle of playing basketball with some kids. And, uh, and unfortunately, I feel like I do that in my spiritual life as well, where there's times that I'm underprepared and overconfident. But we need to be prepared because God uses the situations in our life. He uses people in our life. He uses circumstances in our life to see if we will be faithful, to test us. My text verse, he talks about him testing the children of Israel multiple times. I talked about it last week, how God tests us, that he leaves obstacles in our way to test us to see if we will be faithful. These, things are, these are things that are coming into our life whether we want it or not. Because when you understand the character of God, you understand that he actually does this. And he doesn't make exceptions because you think you're special or because I think I'm special. The children of Israel were his chosen people. If anybody in the Bible was special, it was them. Yet he still left obstacles in their way so that he would see if they would be faithful. In fact, let me read the first two verses again of my text verse because I wanna unpack something here. In verses one and two, it says, these are the nations the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. These people had not experienced the wars when they first went into the land. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. Very, very interesting here. It's a very strategic and intriguing thing that God does here. God is showing us his MO in this passage. He's showing us how he operates in this passage. It says very clearly that he left nations in the land of Canaan so that these, these other the, the younger Jewish people would have to learn how to fight. They would have to learn, they'd have to gain experience in battle. You see, as I said, some time had passed from the time Joshua brought them in to where we are now. And we don't know exactly how much time, but 
It's enough to know that when they first came into the land, some of this generation was either not born yet or they were really young. And they didn't have to fight any of these battles. They didn't have to fight in any of the wars. So they were not battle tested. They were untested. And so God specifically left nations in there to teach warfare to the generations that were following Joshua's generation. Now, why would he do that? Why would God even do that? Why wouldn't he just tell Joshua, hey, when you go in, I'm gonna keep you alive until everybody's gone and you can just wipe them all out so the next generation can just come up and just enjoy the fruit of your labor? Why wouldn't he just do that? Or why wouldn't he do it like he did to Sodom and Gomorrah and say, you know what, I'm just gonna get rid of them myself, rain sulfur from the sky and take them out? Why didn't God do that? Why did God specifically leave these people in the land to, to teach the Israelites how to, how to fight in battle? Well, I think one of the biggest reasons he did it is because he's showing that even though this was the promised land, this was the promise that God had given Abraham many hundreds of years earlier. They were promised to have this land, okay? And it was, a, it was a direct promise from God. There was no doubting it. He confirmed it. He made sure of it. And he was bringing them into this land. So what he's showing us here, I believe, is that from the time of the promise that God gives you, whatever that promise is, to the time of its fulfillment in your life, that there is going to be battles all along the way. Now, I know you might think, wait a minute. You're telling me that when God promises me something, it's not going to be a cakewalk to get to the fulfillment of that promise? Almost every time. It is not going to be a cakewalk. The way God works is that he gives us a promise and a lot of times it's the promise he's given us that sustains us through those battles to get us to the fruition of it, to get us to the fruit of that battle or to the fruit of that promise. There's going to be a time between the promise and the fulfillment and in that time there's always, always, always going to be challenges. There's always going to be battles. There's always going to be adversaries. There's always going to be something coming against us in our life that we have to hold on to that promise while you're going through the tribulation to get to the fulfillment of the promise. And if you've been walking with Jesus any amount of time, you know that's true. I can't tell you how many times I have held on with a death grip to the promise I know that God has given me at a time when it did not feel like that was going to happen. It felt like anything but that was going to happen. Lord, I know you said this, but it sure doesn't feel that way today. And that's how, he, that's how he works. And we have to understand his MO because when we understand it, it gives us the strength to get through it. If you don't understand how he works and you just got a promise and all of a sudden it doesn't look like the promise is gonna happen, you think God's a liar. Or you think, well, I just didn't hear him right. Or you think, well, something's just not, something's not right. God's not as good as I thought he was. When the reality is, this is how he works all the way through the Bible. You see it all over the place. In fact, you will find few exceptions to this rule, even in the Bible. And I would challenge you to find the exception to the rule with people that you know that have heard a promise from God and haven't seen difficulties and tribulation leading up to the fruition of it. I mean, Noah experienced it. Noah got a promise from God, hey, you're gonna, I'm gonna save your family, I'm destroying the earth. The good news is you're gonna be saved and you are gonna be solely responsible to prevent the extinction of all the animals on the earth. And Noah could have heard that and thought, great, let me know when you need me. And God would say, no, actually, you're going to spend a large portion of your life building a boat, and, and everybody's going to make fun of you for it because there's never been any rain on the earth, so I don't even know what that is. And you're going to have to go through all of this to get to the place of the promise, to the fruition of that promise. Oh, and by the way, there's going to be some pretty bad storms along the way, too, to get there. And you think about David, and David is a young boy, and he's anointed the next king of Israel. Samuel looked past all of Jesse's other sons and went to David, the youngest, and said, this is the guy. 
You imagine David on that day thinking, yeah, praise God, this is amazing. I'm just a little shepherd boy, now I'm gonna be king. He's already figuring out how, how he wants his crown to look on his head. Oh, by the way, for the next 15 years, you're gonna be running for your life from the guy that you're gonna replace. Just FYI. I mean, it's all through Paul. Paul was like, God meets him on the road to Damascus and he anoints him, he's like, he gets a vision of God, he gets to see Jesus and he says, you're gonna be my preacher to the Gentiles. You're gonna take the gospel to the Gentiles. You're gonna be the powerful apostle Paul. And, and Paul's like, that's wonderful. By the way, you're gonna write a good bit of what you're gonna write from prison. You're gonna go through a lot of stuff to see the fruition of that promise I gave you. That's how God works. Over, I mean, I could share story after story after story. Joseph, I mean, just all through the Bible of the promise to the fulfillment, lots and lots of battles. This is why God prepared, why we have to be prepared. This is why God, this is how he works in our life. So let's get back to Israel, okay? So he didn't just wipe them out. He left them there because he wanted them to have to fight. And here's the deal. Even if he'd wiped them all out, unless he destroyed the whole earth except for the Israelites, there were still gonna be battles. If they'd gone into the promised land, there were still people living around this land. The reason it was a promised land and it was dedicated to the, the Israelites was because it was the preferred land. It was the land flowing with milk and honey. It was very desirable. It was a hot commodity for other nations too. So even if he had wiped them all out, other nations would have wanted to come in and still fight. They would have still had battles in their life. As long as you're on this earth, there's going to be battles in your life. So him wiping everybody out wouldn't have helped them. So what he did was he used the situation to go ahead and raise up the next generation so that they would be battle ready, so that they could fight and learn how to fight battles so they could see God's fulfillment of his promises in their life. That's why he did what he did there. God does not remove all of our obstacles what he does is he allows these obstacles to prepare us for later. You see, God's faithfulness in our life, church, is not him getting rid of all of the problems we have. Sometimes he gets rid of some problems. But his faithfulness in our life doesn't just look like him getting rid of problems. It looks like him going through those problems with us. And that's got to be enough. If that's not enough for us, then we're missing something. We're lacking some understanding of who he is. Him being with us is much more important than him getting rid of everything in our way. There's no comparison. Absolutely no comparison in our life. You know, you think about the Great Commission. Most of you know what the Great Commission is. It's Jesus after he resurrected from the dead and before he went back to heaven. At the end of Matthew, he gives what we call the Great Commission where he tells the disciples, go, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and teaching them all that I have commanded you to obey. Beautiful. It's, the, it's, it's what every Christian has been commissioned by God and has been empowered by God to be the carriers of the gospel to the world, to the people in our life, to the people around us, to wherever God would call you to be purveyors of the gospel, to give the gospel to people. It's the greatest uh, responsibility, greatest privilege in the history of the world for us as Christians to be able to carry the gospel. But that's not the end of the verse. See, at the very end of that verse, after he says all those things, he says, oh, by the way, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. There's a reason he said that, sure. Because God knows, and you know now, if you've even attempted to share the gospel with people, there's gonna be resistance. There's gonna be obstacles in the way of you sharing the gospel. The greatest commission, the greatest uh, responsibility we have in this world God did not remove all the obstacles from it. 
He didn't say, take the gospel, and, and man, everybody you tell, is gonna, it's gonna be like you're offering them a cold Coca-Cola on a hot summer day. They're just gonna lap it up. It's not how it works. I've shared the gospel plenty of times where people just told me to go away. There's going to be resistance to it. And Jesus said, I, he didn't say, I'm gonna take all the resistance away so that you guys can just share the gospel and it's gonna go perfect for you. What he says is, I'm gonna send you out, but by the way, I'm gonna be with you. Being with you is more important than making sure the road is smooth and making sure that there's no, no uh, other nations, there's no Canaanites, there's no Jebusites, there's no other people in the way. That's not the important part. The important part is that he's with you. And that's his promise to us, is that he's going to be with us. And he left, the, the scripture tells us that one of the other reasons he left the, the other nations there was because he wanted to see if they would be faithful. Let me read verse four again of my text verse. It says, these people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands the Lord had given to their ancestors through Moses. They were left to see if the Israelites would obey the commands of God. He is purposely leaving obstacles, dangerous obstacles, by the way, to see if they would be faithful. Let me give you an illustration. You ever notice how it's easier to stay on a road? Like you'd be a little more distracted when you're driving on a straight road and still be okay. You know, if you're on I-20, set your cruise, the road's straight, there's no traffic. You know, I mean, maybe you might have texted once or twice in your life. <laughs> but if you're on uh, one of those roads that's got a lot of curves, like if you're on Riverwatch headed downtown where it's nothing but this for four or five miles, or areas of William Few headed towards Greenbrier where it's really curvy, and there's actually warning signs that say, warning, you know, and it's got the snake on the sign four miles up ahead, you know, like it's a lot of curves because you have to pay better attention. Have you ever noticed there's never been a warning sign on a straight road saying, warning, straight road ahead? You don't need it, right? You don't need a warning for a straight road because it's a straight road, and it's gonna be a little easier in general to drive on a straight road than it is a curvy road. You only need the warning signs when it's going to be curvy in line. And you can be more distracted and still get away with it if you're on a straight road than if you're on a curved road. I'll say it again, you can be more distracted, have less focus on a straight road and still get away with it. When everything is straight and perfect in our life and everything is smooth and nice and the road is clear sailing, you can have a, uh, a fraudulent sense of loyalty to God. If everything in your life, everything in your faith, everything you're dealing with is just kind of, the mountains have been made level for you. Now listen, God does that. We sang about that today. God does make the, the mountain, he knocks the mountains down for us. He makes a way in the desert. He makes roads through the sea. He does those things for us when he, when, when he chooses to do those things. But more often than not, you, you know and I know that most of the time, the mountain's still there. The curves in the road are still there. The, the challenges are still there. And when everything is straight, we can get a false sense of loyalty to God, where we think I'm actually doing really good. I love God a lot. What you, when you really find out where you are in your faith and where you are in your relationship with the Lord is when you're on the curved road and things aren't so easy and you're having to really focus and you can get off the road and get in the ditch. When you really have to, when you're really going through the difficult times in life, that's when you really understand where you are in your faith. The curvy road shows us what we're made of. So, I'm, and I'm not saying we should be striving for the, the difficulties in life, but the reality is they're going to be there. And God allows those things to be there because he wants to see if we will be faithful. 
And that's okay. And that's a good thing. And it doesn't mean you have to be faithful every single time. We fail all the time. All the time. I could name two times this week that I failed that I know of, which means there's probably about 30 more that I've already forgot. Because that's just how we are. But we learn as we go through the trials in life what it looks like to be faithful. Because obeying God in our life, obedience comes from being battle-tested. Obedience to God. It comes more from being battle-tested than it does when everything is perfectly smooth in front of us. You want to be more consistent in obedience? Don't run from the battle. Run through it. Run through it with him. Don't spend all your energy trying to figure out how to avoid the battles in life. Don't, don't drive miles and miles and miles out of the way to just get the straight road. But allow him to go with you through the challenging ones. He prepares us because he knows that storms are, storms are coming and that we're going to have to know how to fight. We're gonna to have to know how to battle for our faith, church. You know, the symbol of Christianity is a cross. We all know that. You see a cross anywhere, you immediately assume Christian, right? It's a good thing, and it's for obvious reasons for those of us that know. We know why the cross is the symbol. But there's a reason it's a cross, and it's not a recliner or a nice, cozy cashmere sweater or a beautiful sunset over the ocean. Those aren't the symbols of Christianity. It's a cross. Now, we'll dress it up. We'll make it pretty and make it out of gold and put a chain on it and hang it around our neck, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But the real cross it's not like that at all. The real cross is bloodstained. The real cross is rugged. It's splintered, and it's got nail holes in it from where our Savior's hands and feet were nailed to it. It is a sign of the battle that Jesus had to go through. And it is also a sign of the battles we will have to go through in this faith. There's a reason that the symbol of our faith is a cross. God intended for it to be that way for us. This whole idea of a of like a utopia on earth that we can, we can strive for in some ways is, is actually contrary to God's word, that we would want everything in this life to just be smooth and perfect. It doesn't even line up with God's plan for us. The time where everything's gonna be like a utopia and perfectly smooth is when we get to be with him. And if everything here was wonderful and perfect all the time, we'd never wanna leave this place. And listen, church, we're supposed to wanna leave this place. We're supposed to want to leave here. Now, if, you know, we're, we're, we're also designed to live a full life, too. So, you know, we're not supposed to want to leave here today, especially if you got young kids. I mean, there's a part of you that wants to go be with Jesus. Paul said, man, I want to go be with him, but it's better that I stay here. But there should be an aspect of us. We're not meant to love this world. It's not meant to be this perfectly smooth, wide road that we can set our crews and do whatever we want. It's meant to be a place that we know is temporal, and we're looking forward to a greater place to be able to be with him in our life. And because God knew these battles were real, he wanted to train his people up, including you and me, to be able to fight the good fight. Just like the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, he said, fight the good fight of faith. The life of faith is a fight. And he's saying, fight it. And he also, Paul also said that I have fought the fight. He, he says he did it himself, and he's telling Timothy to do it as well. He's encouraging Timothy to do it. So as we are preparing for battle, there's a couple things we need to, we need to do. I want to give you just two things today that we need to do as we prepare for battle. First is that we need to identify our worship. Identify your worship. You need to ask yourself today, who or what do I worship? And it may not be as cut and dry as you think, because you might be sitting there thinking, well, I just did worship about 20 minutes ago. And yeah, that's an expression of worship. 
But who do you, or what do you really worship? Let's look at who the Israelites worshiped. Judges 3, just the next couple verses after my text verse, verses 5 and 6. It says, the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served other gods. The exact thing that God warned them would happen if they didn't wipe out these other countries happened, or these other nations. It is exactly what God said. You need to get rid of them because if you don't, you're gonna be tempted to serve their gods. It's exactly what they did. Now listen, we're talking about the children of Israel here. We're talking about the people that saw the manifest presence of God in ways that no one has seen since. Powerful ex, uh, uh, issue, situations where God showed his power to them, where he revealed himself to them. The Red Sea, the Jordan River, uh, I mean, so many things. The provision for them, where they, didn't even have to, they just woke up in the morning and there was food on the ground. And there was everything they needed. And then they go into the promised land and God's wiping out people for them. I mean, they're, they're doing some of the work, but God's doing the majority of it. You can see it. They've seen God working in ways that you and I have never seen with our actual eyes. And yet, here we go, they're serving their other gods. And it's easy for us to dismiss this and think, well, they were just obviously ignorant. They were obviously hard-hearted. But, but, but let's look at it for a second here. Because what they did was they worshiped these gods. The gods of in Canaan at the time, the two prevalent gods were Baal and Ashtoreth, okay? Baal was the god that, that uh, it was, it was this despicable practices that they had as they worshiped this god. They'd build an altar, they'd make sacrifices, they would literally put live babies in the fire because they thought that, that Baal would, would bless them if they did. I mean, outrageous stuff. And Ashtoreth was the god that, that they would, uh, they did all kinds of, there was a lot of sexual deviance that came with worshiping this God, stuff I can't even mention on a Sunday morning. Despicable stuff that they did. And the Israelites just jumped right in and they worshiped these gods along with the people of this land. And it was really gross. But I would, I would encourage you and challenge you not to dismiss this as something, well, this is something, I would, I would never do this. Listen, the people of God are often in danger of worshiping the things of the world. We are very, very much in danger of worshiping the things of this world. It's very easy for us to do. I mean, yeah, we, we polish it up a bit. We're not going to do some of the stuff they did and the way they did it. But listen, the God of Baal was basically about money. It was about prosperity. It was about wealth. And the God of Ashtoreth, or the goddess, was about love and romance and relationships. So let's look at it from that perspective. Do we, in the, in the church, in the United States, do we as Christians, do we struggle with worshiping money or worshiping love and romance? <laughs> Every day, every day. We don't bow down to it, but that's not how we worship anymore. Nobody bows down in the United States to worship something. That's not how we, that's not really a practice you see. But let me tell you something. What you worship isn't what you bow down to physically. It's what you bow down to emotionally. What you bow down to emotionally, that's what you worship. Worship is about giving something of the highest value. Whatever you put in your life, whatever's the highest value in your life is what you worship. There's not a human being that's ever lived that does not worship. The singing we do at the beginning of a church service on a Sunday morning, that, that is not just what worship is. Worship is what you do with your life the other six days of the week. And if money is the highest priority in your life, that's what you're worshiping. You don't have to have a stack of cash on the kitchen table and doing wailing towards it to be worshiping it. 
It's what has the highest value in your life. If your relationships are the highest value in your life, if you're constantly putting your spouse ahead of your relationship with the Lord, you are worshiping the same goddess that they worshiped when they went into the land. That's, that's easy for us to do, isn't it? Because it's in our face all the time. It's easy for us to worship those things, and we have to be intentional to make sure that that's not where we go because it is a natural progression for us, a very easy progression for us to turn to a God that benefits us the most. It really is. This isn't even, I don't mean this to be heavy-handed or, or even as a rebuke. I, I think it's just more for us, like, we just need to understand that worship is something that we have to be intentional about. If we're, when, I, when I worship on a Sunday morning singing songs, that's, a, that's an outward expression of what my life hopefully is backing up. That I already worship my God six days, the other six days too, and I just get an opportunity on a Sunday morning to sing it out in a corporate setting. And that's really great. That's really wonderful. And I, it's a blessing to be able to do that. But worship is about what we put at the top of our priority list in our life. Praise God. We have to be so, so diligent in our life. You see, worship can seem a little weird when you talk about preparing for the battle. Like, is worship, is preparing for a battle, is it really about worship? Well, if you understand worship, it makes all the sense in the world. Because worship is meant to be at the front of the battle. Let me, let me put it this way. What you give the highest value to in your life is what's gonna stand shoulder to shoulder with you when you go through stuff. Okay? If you... If money is the highest value in your life, if, if everything to you revolves around money, and not, not saying like that's all you think about, but it's just the highest priority. Like everything else falls under that. I gotta make sure I got enough money. I gotta make sure I'm putting money away. I gotta make sure I'm, I'm getting the stuff I need. I gotta make sure I'm keeping up with the Joneses. I gotta, it's just, it's, it's the thing that it has the highest priority in your life. And, and that, would, that would constitute a large percentage of people in the United States today, okay? If that's the number one thing, if that's the thing you worship above all else in your life, when you go through the battle, Whatever that battle is, that's what's gonna stand shoulder to shoulder with you is your money. You're gonna look to your money to get you through the battles in your life. If comfort is the most important thing in your life, if that's the thing you worship above all else, when you go through the battles, the comfort is gonna stand shoulder to shoulder with you and that's what you're gonna draw on to try to get you through those battles. Whatever is number one, whatever is the, the, the object of your worship in your life is what is going to stand with you when you go through the battle. So if you stand with Jesus, if you're worshiping Jesus, if he's the, the highest level of worship in your life, when you go through the battle, he's the one that's gonna stand shoulder to shoulder with you. He's the one that's gonna get you through the battle. He's the one that you're gonna lean on. See, here's the deal, church. Like money can get you through some of those battles. It can get you through some of them. Money is, has value. So there's certain things you run into. If you got enough money, you can get through it. But there's some battles, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you're not getting through it. Not with the money. The richest people in the world go through a lot of battles and they, all the money in the world does not fix it. There's only one thing, one person we can worship and put at the top that can go through every single battle with us and that is Jesus. He's the only one that can do it. He's the only one that will stand with you. Praise God. Everything else is temporal. Jesus gets us through those things. He gets us... He walks with us through our battles, and he's permanent. He's with us. He promises he will never leave us, never forsake us. I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. That is a powerful statement that he makes that we need to stand on and believe and walk out in our life. 
So we need to identify our worship and we also need to grow in our knowledge. This is the second one. We identify who or what we're worshiping and then whatever entity that is that we worship, we grow in our knowledge of that. And that's a natural progression. It really is. This isn't something you even have to be incredibly intentional about. Whatever you worship in your life, you're gonna naturally be drawn to grow in your knowledge of that. If money is the number one thing in your life, you're gonna be naturally drawn to learn more about money, how to make it work for you, how to, how to have more, how to get interest, how to have compound interest, all those things. If that's number one in your life, you're gonna naturally know a lot about money and how to make money and how to save money and how to keep money. Whatever is the place in the place, the highest seat of worship in your life, you're gonna naturally be, be inclined to grow in your knowledge of what that is. And if Jesus is at the place of worship in our life, he is the one that we are drawn to grow in our knowledge of him. I cannot express this strongly enough, church, because this is one of the number one deceptions in the church today is that we don't really need knowledge about Jesus. I don't really need a lot of knowledge. Knowledge actually stands in the way of the spiritual. I don't need to know him in my head. I need to know him in my heart, right? And we, we minimize the importance of knowledge sometimes in our faith. I don't need all that stuff. I just need the basics. I know enough. I know he died for me. I know he loves me. I know he's good. I know he's omnipresent. I know he's omnipotent. I know he's omniscient. I know all those things. I know the, I know the, big, the high points about him. I know the basics. That should be enough. And I know that a lot of us live that way because I know statistically what we hear about the word of God and its level of importance even in the church. And so we live this lie believing I really don't have to grow in my knowledge of him, I just wanna feel him. I just wanna, I don't need to know the details, but let me tell you something, knowing the details of God is what, is what separates the ones who walk through the battles victoriously and the ones who are derailed by it. It's the knowledge of him, it's the understanding of him. It's so important. We would never claim to know a lot about something else that we haven't, or even to be able to trust in something else that we don't have knowledge of, but for some reason in our faith, we're willing to do that to not have really have a lot of knowledge, but still act like we are good and we're okay. Knowing the basics doesn't get us through most of the battles. It's knowing and understanding the character of God that gets you through. It's the intimacy that Jesus came to pay the price for so that we could even have. And we could have that intimacy with him. But it, but it starts with understanding him. It starts with a knowledge of him. That is so important. And if we just have the basics, we are, we are playing a very, very dangerous game, church. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you have someone in your life that is, that is dying from something, okay? I know this is a little heavy-handed, but I, I, wanna, I wanna make my point here. Somebody in your life that's dying, and you know the basics. You're a Christian. You know you've been saved by grace through faith. And you know that God is the healer. You know that he is all-powerful. You know that he's a miracle worker. You know that there's nothing that your God can't do. In fact, you sang about it. You know that he's good, that he loves, that he cares about us, that he created us. He, cre he knit us together in our mother's womb. He created our innermost being. You know all those things. So you stand on your faith saying, God, I need you to be that for my person here that I love so much that's dying. And then it doesn't happen. 
and that person doesn't get the healing that, that you prayed for and believed for. That person gets their permanent healing, but not on this side, okay? If all you know is the basics, it's so easy to feel like you are left standing there holding the bag. God, I thought this, I thought this is who you are. I mean, this is what we sing about. This is what I hear in church all the time, that you're the healer, that you're great, that you're powerful, that nothing is too difficult for you. The enemy's under your feet. I mean, you created this person. Why couldn't you heal? And you can feel lost. You can feel like, I don't know what's happening here. And oftentimes it's because we really don't have that depth of relationship with him. We've just kind of been content to know the basics. We've just been kind of content to just trust that, you know what, God in his mercy and grace, he's gonna get me through those battles. Even if I don't really know what I need to know about how he even operates, I don't really know a lot about his character, I just know kind of the Sunday school stuff, he's still in his mercy and his grace gonna get me through those battles. When the reality is, he says, no, you need to know me. If you know him and you know you have understanding of him and you, you know how he works, you know how he functions, then you can see situations differently than if you just know the basics. Now, don't get me wrong, there's no way to know everything, there's no way to understand everything about our God. The Bible is incredibly clear that his ways are so much higher than ours, his thoughts are so much higher than ours, he is sovereign, he is over all and in all and above all, and there's no way we can know it all. But there is understanding we can have when we understand the character of God, and we understand how he works, and we understand what matters to him and what's important, and, and, and going deeper in our relationship with him than just being stuck in the basics. We do not need to try to understand situations or understand the battles on our own. Lack of understanding is what leads to defeat in our life. Only that knows that know him on an intimate level will win the battles. Let me, let me show you Judges 21, okay? This is, this is kind of the overall theme of the book of Judges, right here summed up in this one verse. It says, in verse 25, it says, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, let me tell you something, that is never good. If, the, if on my tombstone it said that he did what he seemed right in his own eyes, you'll know I did something really dumb. That's probably why I'm not here anymore. We are not meant to, to try to figure this out on our, in our, with our own understanding in our own eyes. Freedom doesn't come from doing what is right in our own eyes. That is a recipe for bondage. And we're, we're called to be free. Jesus said in John 8, 32, one of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible. It says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know how this gets misquoted? They just say the second part. The truth is setting you free. The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. The truth doesn't set you free. Knowing the truth is what sets you free. The truth is that Jesus came and died for the world. That's the truth. There's a lot of people that haven't been set free by that. You're only set free by it if you know it. The only truth that sets you free is truth you know. How do you know truth if you don't have understanding? How can you be free if you don't really know the truth? See, too often times we're content to just know a little bit of truth. We're free from the bondage of having to be separated, separated eternally from our God because we're saved. I know that. I know enough truth to know how, what I need to do to get saved. And then too often times we're okay to just kind of stay at that surface level. I've got my salvation. I've got that freedom. I understand that truth. And that truth has definitely set me free that's the most important one. But there's so much more to it than just that. We're not called to just live as people that are just holding on until we can get to heaven. There's freedom for us to live on the earth. But that freedom only comes by, from knowing the truth. 
because the truth is what sets us free when we know it. Did you know one of the biggest weapons in your arsenal of faith is understanding? It's understanding. It's literally one of your biggest and best weapons that you have. There's nothing more important than growing in the understanding of your God. Proverbs 4 and 7. It says, wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. That is a very, very extreme statement. But let me tell you, this is not hyperbole, okay? This is not, this is actually, it means what it says. If it costs all you have, get understanding. Why would it say it such an extreme way? What's the big deal for me to have understanding? He says, if it costs all I have, I'm still supposed to try to go get understanding. Part of the reason is because battles are coming, church. Battles are coming. They're coming in your life. And the way to get through the battles is to have understanding, understanding of who God is, not just, not, and not just a head knowledge, but really knowing him, having that intimate relationship with him, having an intimacy that goes beyond what you can get on a Sunday morning. If the sum total of your understanding you get from God is on a few Sunday mornings a month, you're not getting near enough. You're not even, get, you're not even scratching the surface. Sunday mornings are wonderful, but they are, meant to, they are meant to enhance our already intimate relationship with Jesus. To, to encourage us and to spur, spur us on in our faith the other six days of the week. That's what it's designed for in our life, to get understanding. I, I love what Jesus, in Matthew 13, Jesus is given the parable of the seed and the sower. And he's talking about how the word of God is the seed that gets thrown out. You know, the, the, uh, the understanding that's available to us gets thrown out. And our hearts are one of four different types of soil. There's a soil, there's a soil the enemy takes it right away and the seed doesn't even grow. There's the soil that's real shallow and the person's faith is never strong, it just stays surface level. Then there's the one who, who, uh, who it goes, that grows up quick but then it gets scorched by the sun and really is unfruitful. And then the fourth kind is the really good one. That's the one that Jesus is encouraging us that we need to have this type of soil. And let me read what he says about it in verse 23 of Matthew 13. He says, but the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what is sown. The man who hears the word and understands the word. It doesn't say the one who hears the word and is the most gifted is gonna yield a crop. It doesn't say the one who hears the word and is the most spiritual is gonna yield a crop. It doesn't say the one who hears the word and is the most anointed is gonna yield a crop in their life. It's not what it says. It says the one who hears it and understands it. Guess who can do that? All of us. Any one of us can understand the word of God. And he says, if you will understand it, it will yield a crop in your life. It will yield fruit in your life. So the contrary is also true. Fruitless lives are almost always a lack of understanding who God is. That is the recipe for a fruitless life is when we don't have understanding of who he is. His plan for us is that we would grow in our knowledge of him as we fight the battles. The children of Israel did not grow in their knowledge of him. It says they did what was right in their own eyes. It feels good, it seems good to me, let's do it. Let's go worship Baal. Let's go worship these other gods. Let's go just do whatever. I don't remember what God did for me back then. What's the big deal? They did what was right in their own eyes and it's what got them in trouble every time. It's what got them in their bondage that 
We saw last week the cycle that they would have to keep getting taken out of bondage by judges. What put them into the bondage was doing what was right in their own eyes. It's not meant to be that way. God has given us an opportunity. He's given us resources to be able to have understanding, to be able to know him in a greater way. Church, I encourage you. I, I say it fairly frequently, but it is such a big deal. I know what this, what understanding has done in my life. It's been incredible. It's, I, I can't imagine living my life not, not being in this book consistently in my life and letting it feed me and, and building and growing my understanding of who he is. It, is, it has got me through many, many battle, battles in my life, many times where I had a promise from God and it looked like it wasn't gonna happen and because I had understanding of him and who he is and his character and how he operates, it, gave me, it helped give me the strength to get through that to see the fruition of that promise. And he wants to do the same for you. But you can't know what you don't know. I wish I could just pray and say, God, put this all in my head right now. That'd be amazing. My head would probably explode though, but that's not how it works. It's about getting understanding. If it costs all you have, church, get it. If it costs all you have, get it. Go get it. There's no cost too great to get understanding, to grow in your knowledge of who he is. No cost too great, but there is an incredible cost to not getting it. The worship of money, the worship of relationships, the worship of comfort, the worship of health, the worship of entertainment, the worship of everything in this world that wants our worship. Don't believe the lie that those things don't want your worship. They want it. They all want it. And your nature wants to give it to them. A few weeks ago, I preached on Romans 7, and our nature is not to serve God. Our nature is to do our own thing. Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Coming from a Christian man that wrote a good portion of the New Testament. Our, our nature is to go after those things, to worship those gods that make us feel good, the gods that make us happy. Do not follow in the path of the Jews and of the, of the Israelites in their days of the judges, but identify your worship and grow in your knowledge of God. Would you stand with me, please? I wanna pray for us today. Thank the Lord for his word. It is so good. It is life-giving to us, church. I wanna encourage you to respond today. You can come to the altar. I'm gonna pray. If the Lord put anything on your heart and you just wanna give it to him at the altar today, you can do that. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I encourage you to respond even in your seat. If you're comfortable to even hold out your hands, lift up your hands. We're really good with that in this church to express our worship to God. Father, we thank you today for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this incredible privilege of knowing you, the incredible privilege of worshiping you. What an incredible thing that we can come into your throne room and worship you, not because we're good enough, but because of what you did for us. So Lord, we give you our worship today. I encourage you, church, in this moment, with your eyes closed, you don't have to do it out loud, but just even in your heart, just think of one thing that you have to thank God for in your life and thank him for it. Just thank him for it. One thing that you're thankful for.
And now I want you to think of one thing that you want to ask him to do, that you need him to do for you. Something you're, you're believing him for. Something that you want to ask him to do. Do that as well. Thank him for something and then ask him for something. Thank you, Lord. Now, I just want you to worship him on your own in any way you want to do it. You could do it with your eyes closed, your eyes open. It doesn't matter. Just worship him. Give him the highest worth. If you put other things above him, repent of it. If you put money above him, if you put relationships above him, <coughs> whatever it might be. Repent of it. Repentance is an act of worship. It's saying, God, you're, you know more than I do. I trust you, God. Lord, thank you for giving us the opportunity to worship you. And for not only want, asking us to grow in our knowledge of you, but making a way so that we can. How blessed are we? We thank you for it, Lord. been so good to me, better than I could ever deserve. We love you, Jesus. God, help us to worship you with our lives, that our lives would be a, 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 an example of what it looks like to live a life of worship towards you. Lord, give us a hunger for your word. God, where we have just neglected your word, God, would you give us a hunger? Help us to be diligent. Help us to break through the barriers that keep us. We know the enemy would wanna keep us from your word. We know statistically that many people are neglecting it. God, we don't wanna be a statistic. Help us, Lord. Give us strategies, Lord. And just give us a hunger for your word. Help us to gain understanding from your word, God. We thank you for it, Lord. We love you. It's in your precious name we pray, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Praise God. Yes. Yes. Praise the Lord. Thank you.